you'll open your Bibles to John chapter 8, we're going to look at those first 11 verses of John chapter 8. And I've entitled the lesson, Stone Throwers. I want to begin by looking at a phrase that I'm sure that you've heard mentioned numerous times. Those who live in glass houses should not throw rocks. And I am sure that I know the meaning of that phrase. People believe that if you live in a glass house, your life is shattering around you, that you shouldn't be throwing rocks at other people's houses. The obvious implication is is that no one should criticize the behavior of anyone else. I want to follow that with some questions for thought. Does sin matter? Does the fact that I commit a sin or you commit a sin actually have any significance whatsoever? Does it mean anything? Does one person have the right to criticize the behavior of another person? Is there ever any time where I can look at someone else's life and say that that person is committing a sin and that God's word commands that something be done about it? What if I'm a hypocrite? Do I have the right to say something to you or to someone else if I have sin in my own life? What does this say about church discipline? Can a church, can an individual look at the behavior of another person and say, I cannot participate with you because there's sin in your life? You see, the truth is, as you begin to explore this idea of those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, you come away with this idea that really you can't say anything to anyone else about problems in their own lives. Let me focus for just a few minutes on John chapter 8 and see how the Lord turns the tables on his critics. Back in chapter 7, he told them not to judge according to appearance, but to judge righteous judgment. The Lord shows us how to do it properly. Let's begin and look at our outline. We're going to look at those first 11 verses. And in verses 1 and 2, we're going to look at the timing. There's a lot that comes into play here. Then second of all, we want to look at the trap that was laid for Jesus in verses 3 through 6. How those people who have been seeking to bring about his demise thought that they had this perfect way to entrap him. Then we want to look at the truth with regards to this. The Lord's going to respond in verses 7 through 9, and then in verses 10 and 11, he will provide the terms for this woman who had been brought before him. Let's begin, first of all, looking at the timing. We're going to begin back, actually, at verse 53 of chapter 7, because it tells us a little bit about what's going on. And John writes, And everyone went to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, 
and he sat down and taught them. Now, um, let me just give you a little background. It's been a couple of weeks since we studied John 7. Jesus went up to the Feast of Tabernacles. And then going up to the feast, there were all kinds of people there. In fact, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of those three Jewish feasts which every male Jew had to attend. So during those feasts, the city of Jerusalem would just be beaming with crowds and crowds of people. And according to 7 verse 53, most of those people have now gone home, the massive crowds. But Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is very close. In fact, you have the little Kidron Valley and then right on the other side is the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to talk about that tonight. And then at the foot is where the Garden of Gethsemane is and then up that hillside is the Mount of Olives. Jesus often would go to this place and spend the night. But now Jesus comes early in the morning And the people who are still there in the temple come and Jesus now is able to sit down and teach the people. I can visualize in my mind how the Lord has now gone into the temple. He sits down. There's groups of people around him. He's got this opportunity. There's a timing involved. But you see, there's an encounter with the critics that's inevitable They've already ordered the arrest of Jesus. You remember during the Feast of Tabernacles, during the middle part of the feast, as it neared toward the end, that the Pharisees and the scribes had ordered Jesus to be arrested? If you go back to chapter 7, verse 32, then the Pharisees heard the crowds murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. You drop down to verse 44 and the officers have returned and they've not arrested Jesus. And it said some wanted to take him but because but no one laid hands on him. And the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? And their answer was, No man ever spake like this man. You know sooner or later they're going to find an opportunity. They're going to seek an opportunity to bring Jesus down, and the timing now is the crowds have left. Jesus is teaching in the temple. Now they feel they have a perfect opportunity, a perfect timing to get Jesus. Now let's look at verses 3 through 6. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman taken or caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded that us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They, this they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Now, verse 6 explains their motivation. 
They're not concerned about the law. They're not concerned about the proper administration of the law. They're not concerned about the woman nor the sin which she committed. They're only using the scriptures for their own selfish means. You see, if I take God's word and I use it as some means to try to bring you down, I'm not using God's word properly. I'm using it for my own selfish benefit. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul makes a very important statement. But we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. He uses it lawfully. You see, law has an intended purpose. And God wanted the law used as he intended it. And they've got another purpose in mind. And so they're not using it properly. This event was designed to destroy Jesus' status among the people. Do you remember back at the Feast of Tabernacles, some would say, he's a good man. He must be the Christ. Now they're trying to destroy him. And in doing so, they're trying to put him in a situation where he would be contradicting the law. But you see, you have to remember, Jesus knows the law. Remember chapter 7 and verse 15? And the Jews marvel, saying, how does this man know the letters, having never studied? How does he know the writings, the scriptures? How does he know God's law? He knows it so well. In their minds, here we are, we've got him hung. This is nothing more than political theater. They don't love the woman. They don't even love the law. It reminds me a lot of what's going on in our country today. You have one side that wants to make an ordeal about something. They don't care about us as the people. They don't care about our country. All they care about is their power and their political intrigue. You see, there's so many people that are in it for themselves. These people here don't care about God. They don't care about the law. They're in it to get rid of Jesus. So he's not going to challenge their power. Now let's return to the text. Here's a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Presumably there's got to be at least two witnesses to observe this. Because in Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6 we read, Whoever is deserving to be put to death or shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses... He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Evidently, there are people who say, we caught this woman in the very act, and there's got to be at least two of them who said, we've done this. It's going to be significant. Their question to Jesus is, but what do you say? Do you see the options they believe they have Jesus caught in? If Jesus says, yes, the law says, stone this woman. And they stone her. And the Roman authorities come and they say, who gave you the authority to command this woman to be killed? 
Capital punishment is only by the permission of the Roman government. They did not permit the Jews to enact on their own capital punishment. On the other hand, if Jesus says, no Roman law prevents us from doing this, then they'd say, you don't honor the law. You see, they thought they had Jesus either way. John 19, verse 7 and verse 10, you know that this is the case because they bring Jesus to Pilate to kill him. They tell Pilate, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die. In chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus before Pilate, and Pilate says, don't you know I have the power to release you? Don't you know I have the power to crucify you? There's so many things that you can see in this text that makes it clear that they're being duplicitous. You can see they're being a hypocrite about this. Number one, where was the man if she was caught in the act? Because if you're going to insist on the law, you're going to appeal to the law. Deuteronomy 22 says, If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. Ah, but no mention of the man. Oh, but you have witnesses. More than one witness. Where is the man? He's not present. Number two. Why bring this woman to Jesus rather than the judges? You can say, what do you mean by that? Jesus would not function in the position of a normal judge. For instance, do you remember in Luke chapter 17, or excuse me, Luke chapter 12, verse 13? Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Jesus didn't step in and say, Okay, you've got an inheritance issue. He says, I'm not going to be a judge of that matter. Deuteronomy 16 you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates. You see, God had designed a system for the children of Israel that had judges. If this woman was taken in adultery in the very act, why bring her to Jesus? Why not follow the law and bring her to one of the judges and follow that? Jesus' response to them was, to avoid the trap by ignoring them. Of course, we've all wondered what Jesus wrote on the ground. I have no idea. He may have drawn a smiley face for all I know. The text does not tell us. But I will tell you that sometimes refusing to answer is often the loudest response. And it will be in this case. You see, too many times we find ourselves feeling like we have to answer every form of stupidity on the part of others. Folks, that'd be a good lesson to learn with regards to social media. You don't have to respond to everything bad that someone else says. You remember in Matthew 26, verses 62 and 63, the high priest rose up and said to him, Do you answer nothing 
What does these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. Sometimes when you know that people are doing nothing but trying to put you into a dilemma or a trap, just don't say anything. So you look at the trap that they have set for Jesus. But Jesus will respond. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. So they continued asking him. He raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And then he stooped down and wrote wrote on the ground. And then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning from the oldest even to the last. Jesus was left alone, the woman standing in the midst. They continued asking. Silence was not going to be permitted to be an answer. Now you can just see they're asking, they're asking, they're asking. And Jesus is going to respond. And he's going to respond in such a marvelous way. He knew how to take the law and expose their hypocrisy. He will take the very law to which they are appealing and turn it back on them. Listen to Deuteronomy 17.7. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to be put him to death and afterwards the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Do you remember when I brought up the fact that there had to be two witnesses? Because this woman was taken in the very act, they said. And so Jesus says, now, okay, let those first do that who are witnesses. But do you remember the phrase, him who is without sin? See, here's the way that the world interprets that. If you don't have any sin in your life, then you can throw a stone. Oh, those who lived in glass houses shouldn't throw stones as if everybody's house is so susceptible that no one could ever throw a stone. And in that case, no one could have ever practiced the Old Testament law that involves stoning of an adulterer. But Jesus doesn't use the plural word, he who is without sins. No, he uses the singular. And he's not referring to sin in general, but he's referring specifically to their sin that is involved here. He who is without sin in regard to this situation about this woman taking an adultery, then you can throw the first stone. Oh boy, does that change the meaning of that to this specific case. It does not mean any and every sin because if that were true, you could never practice any kind of church discipline because Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says there's not a just man on the earth who does good and does not sin. 
1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if you come away with that idea, you'd say no one could ever exact any kind of discipline or punishment whatsoever. And that's the reason why, beginning from the oldest going to the last, they were convicted by their conscience. You say, what does that mean, they were convicted by their conscience? You see, the conscience is a powerful tool created by God that tells us when you and I are planning on doing something wrong, that it is wrong. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Have you ever condemned your own self? I have, and I know you have too. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15, he talks about their thoughts accusing or excusing them. What was taking place is all of these people who had brought this woman, their conscience, their hearts, their insides were telling them, you didn't do this for the right reason. It's possible even that the witnesses were false. And so for that reason, there's no one there to throw the first stone. There's no witness that says, I'm right in this matter. Boy, does the truth come out. You can't harden your conscience to the point where you no longer care. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, he talks about people whose conscience became seared like with a hot iron. In Titus 1 and verse 15, he talks about peoples whose mind and their conscience are defiled to where they no longer think properly. Once the accusers left, so did the crowd. Now I want you to visualize what's left. Here's the Lord. And here's the woman. Now we're going to look at the terms the Lord provides. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. When Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've read people's writings about this when the Lord said, neither do I condemn you. Do you remember the very first question that I asked? Does sin matter? Does sin count? Is it, is it really an issue? Some people have this idea that sin is not really serious. And that Jesus looks at this woman, okay, adultery is not that bad, Oh, I'd suggest to you adultery is awful. I'd suggest to you that the Lord looked at adultery, in fact, so badly he wanted to stop it before it ever started. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, you have heard it said of those of old, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He said, what you've done is, is 
you've got to step back and say, not only should I not commit adultery, I shouldn't even entertain this idea of lust in my heart. Get down to verse 32, and he's talking about those who would divorce and remarry and a situation that they place themselves in in committing adultery. Oh, adultery is no laughing matter. There were no witnesses. Thus, there's no legal case. You see, Jesus always honored the law. He never violated the law. When Jesus asked, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Those who were witnesses? None, Lord. The Lord's not going to turn around and say to her, You must be stoned, because to do so would have said what the Old Testament law, you have to have two witnesses for a death to take place. Oh, maybe that puts it in a different light then. What Jesus was doing was showing what true, righteous judgment looks like. When he says, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment, that means that you and I, if we're not witnesses to things, we need to be very careful about what we say. If you and I are not participants in something, maybe it's better we spend some time drawing on the ground. You see, Jesus illustrated what righteous judgment looks like. But Jesus did not look at the woman and allow things to be fail to be addressed. He said, woman, go and sin no more. The form of the original language is it's a present imperative. In other words, stop sinning. Stop your sinning. Stop the practice of sin. Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, certainly not. God forbid. We who died to sin, how shall we live any longer in it? Woman, you want to change your life, stop the practice of sin. Was this woman a sinner? Absolutely. Did the Lord address and provide terms for her? He certainly did. Stop sinning. Now let's look at all of this together. How do we look at the sins of other people? Do we look at the sins of other people and somehow look at them and, and say, I'm here to, to criticize everybody else's life. Well, if you are, then you need to also make sure you're first looking at your own life. You remember Jesus' great point in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not that you be not judged? He's not saying that no judgment can take place. What he is saying in verse 5 is hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What that means is I always need to evaluate why I am looking at sin in someone else's life and I must always look for it more in my own life first. Second of all, I need to always ask myself why would I be motivated to expose the sin of someone else? In the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, 
spoke about people. He said, some indeed preached Christ from envy and strife and some from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Here's the bottom line of that. If I am motivated to try to expose someone else's sin, why am I doing that? Because I love them? Because I love God? Because I love His law? Or am I doing it because I want to make their life more difficult? You see, I shouldn't be using the law unlawfully. But I will tell you that Jesus always shines the light. He always shows the right path to follow. And I'd suggest to you that you may be like the woman caught in adultery in the very act. Your sin may be so evident that others see it and may even criticize it. But I'd suggest to you that what you need to do is listen to the Lord to go and sin no more. And if you are not a Christian, you need to come and receive the forgiveness of your sins by becoming a New Testament Christian. You see, the kind of person who believes that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, repenting of those sins that we have committed, confessing our faith in him and then to be baptized, to have all those sins washed away. Acts 22, verse 16. What a wonderful privilege we have at this time. If you're not a Christian, we want to invite you If you are ready to become a Christian, to come forward and be baptized. If you want to become a Christian, but you don't feel that you know enough, then let us know. We'll study with you. We'd love to do that. If you're a child of God and you've got sin in your life, don't wait for someone else to expose it. You yourself confess that sin. Ask for God's forgiveness. And we'll pray with you. Would you come while together we stand and sing?